0: Hello, this is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia University, and this is Shrink Speak. There's only one topic that we could talk about today because it's consuming everyone's interests globally and sucking all of the oxygen out of the air, and that is the COVID 19 pandemic. Being in New York City at Columbia University, we're at the epicenter of this in terms of the United States. This is something that has been unprecedented. We've gone through in our lifetime as natural disasters, but nothing like this in terms of its scale and also its pervasiveness and its enduring length with no clear end in sight. This topic of the COVID-19 pandemic is something that has many, many aspects to it that require a warrant discussion and have extensive technical and more general information that we could delve into, but one of the things that's been in the forefront of people's minds in terms of uh, how to manage the crisis is the issue of testing, uh, diagnostic testing and testing to determine who's been exposed, who might be a carrier, who might be immune to this condition. Even for somebody like myself who, even though I'm not a clinical laboratory pathologist or an infectious disease expert, but a physician specialized in psychiatry, I have not been able to sort of figure out why the testing has been something that has been so complicated, limited in accessibility, and difficult to be able to know how to use and whom and when. To try and address these questions, we're really fortunate to have Dr. Eldad Hode, who is one of the premier experts in terms of clinical and laboratory pathology, developing tests that can identify various uh, agents associated with disease, in this case, infectious pathogens or their antibodies that are generated in response to it. Dr. Hode is an associate professor of pathology and cell biology at Columbia University Vaginalist College of Physicians and Surgeons and the medical director of the Center for Advanced Laboratory Medicine. So thank you for being with us today, Dr. Hode.
1: Thank you, Jeffrey, for inviting me.
0: To begin with, we know that this is a new infectious pathogen, so it's not something that there would have been an existing methodology in most labs and capacity to test for, and we had to act fast. How would you have defined this problem in terms of dealing with it as a pathologist, and what has the process been to mount the necessary laboratory assessments that are needed?
1: There are two things you, you want to know when there's a, when there's an epidemic or a pandemic in this case. One is incidence and one is prevalence. So incidence is how many people have the disease right now and how do you diagnose that? For viruses, you, you really need more of a molecular test. So that's the nasal swab, the nose swab that, that people are using. Our first challenge was bringing up the nose swab test so that we could find out who currently is coming into our emergency rooms has the virus. And and that was met by a lot of challenges due to lack of supplies, lack of prior planning. We didn't have the reagents we needed to to do those tests. But now that that has been, um, for the most part, worked out and we have uh, a much greater capacity for for testing um, here at Columbia, the next challenge is figuring out the prevalence or how many people had the disease in the past.
0: Dr. Hode, let me interject to stop you right there. So uh, if I understand correctly, uh, you need to do a molecular test to make a diagnosis, and that requires collecting a specimen. And in this case, the specimen is with a swab as opposed to a blood test. Um, So it's sort of like the strep tests used to be, where you would take a swab and make a culture. I can understand when you say reagents. Reagents are chemicals, materials that you need to calibrate the assay and validate it. Why are swabs in short supply?
1: I'm not in charge of the inventory as to why we don't have enough swabs. I don't know why we don't have enough masks in this country. Those are great questions, but that's not one that I can address because that, that's not my, you know, the, the inventory for swabs is not my issue, but or it's not what I'm responsible for. I could talk about why you need swabs to diagnose COVID-19. On the testing level, what I meant, we don't have reagents. It wasn't just the swabs. So what does the swab do? You, you swab the nose. You actually pull virus off the inside of your nose onto the swab that's put into a viral culture media and you transfer that to the lab and so first thing to remember is that on that swab is live virus that so you just have to think about safety for the, the staff first and so everything has to be done very carefully in, in hoods you have to pull that swab out and then the virus itself has RNA inside so RNA is sort of like DNA but it's the reverse. Um, And so you have to do what's called a molecular test to detect the RNA. And so in order to do that, you have to digest it, and you have to extract the RNA, and then you have to do something called PCR, which is a, a type of test to detect the RNA. And the reagents that we needed to do that testing were in short supply. And initially, we brought up what are called homebrew assays, which are, you know, almost every research lab here has a PCR machine and can do the testing. So when you bring up a test, you have to validate it to make sure that it works appropriately and that it gives you the right answer all the time because you don't want to be giving people false positive results or false negative results. And so we had to do an internal validation. And we started out using a homebrew assay before um, the companies came out with automated assays that we could just put on our machines and crank out over 1,000 tests a day, which is where we are today. So that took some time but initially, when we were just doing the test ourselves based on our knowledge of how to do PCR assays, you know, one of the limiting reagents was the, the reagents you need to do the PCR assay.
0: The unsung heroes, in a way, were the pathology uh, personnel who got the task of developing, validating, and then bringing up to scale a method of molecular diagnostics that didn't exist previously. So, when you got the word that this is bad and we need uh, a diagnostic test to the point that you're now at a a certain scale of being able to do a 1,000-plus samples a day. How long did that take?
1: In general, when you you bring up a new lab test, we sometimes spend months validating it. And here we did it in two days because we knew how important it was. And I know that uh, Susan Whittier and Dan Green, the director and assistant director of the micro lab, basically slept in the, in the microbiology lab for two days to, to make it happen in two days to get it up and running as quickly as possible to increase our capacity to test.
0: So just going back, and uh, this is getting uh, into the weeds a little bit, but um, I think desirably so as to why this took so long and why the accessibility was limited. So the first thing is, is that no test existed and it had to be developed, and that was to uh, be able to get the necessary reagents determine the methodology, get it up and running, and then validate it. Apart from that, you needed a specimen to be able to work with that was collected in the proper way, and that was with a technician or clinician obtaining uh, the specimen in terms of uh, nasopharyngeal swabbing to get the virus and putting it into a medium and delivering it to the laboratory effectively. And so, the materials that were warranted there were the individuals that collected the sample needed to be in PPE adequately a gowned, a masked, a shield, etc., gloves. They needed swabs then, and they needed culture medium. Is that is that correct?
1: That's correct. And also, you know, the the technique is important here. So, if you don't swab well, you're not going to get virus on that, you know, enough virus on the tip of that cotton swab. And so the People have to be trained on how to swap appropriately so that you get you know, an appropriate sample. And so that's another reason why, if we get to the point of care later, you know, this makes it more difficult to do these types of tests at home.
0: And there's been some variability in, in what, the way the sample has been obtained uh, in terms of whether it has to be nasopharyngeal, uh, nasal uh, pharyngeal, uh, or what uh, is, there, is, is there a basis for, for the variation?
1: Well, so at the end of the day, you want to maximize how much virus you have on the tip of the, the cotton swab that, that you could either go into the nose or the mouth. And the nasopharyngeal, you're really pushing it in very deep. And now they're going to be coming out with ones that are approved to be used just in the nares, so just on the outside of the nose, which is a, a lot less uncomfortable for people. But the sensitivity is going to go down when you do that because you're going to capture, there's going to be more virus living in the back of your nose um, where you stick the swab in and spin it for 10 seconds um, as opposed to just swabbing the outside of your nose. And so, depending on where you get the sample, you might be more or less likely to get enough virus on the cotton swab to detect, so you're going to get more false negatives if you just do um, on the outside of the nose versus whether you stick the swab all the way into the nose.
0: With so many different uh, elements or stage steps involved in the process, and the fact that it's a process that was mounted uh, in short time period and has been refined iteratively, it sounds like there's a uh, significant potential for false positive or false negative to occur. Do you have a sense of that and, and uh, is that something that's, um, I imagine, that varies institution to institution and lab to lab?
1: The molecular tests themselves, the analytical part of it, is very sensitive and specific. So you're not going to get many false positives or false negatives assuming that the swab is done correctly. And so initially, to try to maximize our ability to get enough virus into the culture medium, I remember in the early days, they were asking for one nasal swab and a throat swab so that you, and then they would put it in the same tube. So you double the the probability, in a sense, of of getting enough virus into the test. As we were starting to run in short supply of swabs, they decided that the nasal swab was FDA-approved alone, and so we were just going to switch to just having people do nasal swabs. It was basically a decision based on our supply of of swabs.
0: As crazy as that sounds, why did each institution have to scramble to get this up and running as opposed to the CDC? Or, or the NIH or some centralized or federal agency developing this and then rolling it out to uh, healthcare institutions?
1: Initially that was the case. So initially when this all started, the CDC and the Department of Health wanted to do the diagnosis and, and we weren't allowed to do it in our labs yet. And so that was the approach taken at first. And They didn't have the capacity, and so then it has to be rolled out at the various hospitals. And so everyone started scrambling to develop the assay, and then you you can't start doing a test until you validate that um, the way you're doing it is accurate, that you're going to give people accurate results. And so that validation process requires you to have in your hand known positive and known negative samples. And so we would take a swab, test it on our system, also send it to New York State Department of Health or the CDC, make sure that our results match up so that we can feel comfortable that our test is testing the same as the gold standard. Before you can begin testing in-house in your hospital, you have to prove that the test is functioning as specified in the package insert. That process in a normal time could take us a month or two because we have to repeat a lot of the tests. We also have to do what's called a reference range. Um, so for many tests, you get a range of results, and you want to know what's normal and what's abnormal. And so how does how is that done? And the, the truth is the reference range varies depending on your patient population. And so the reference range for a test at Columbia will be different than it is at Cornell or some other hospital because we get different patient populations, and there are different ethnic and, and racial differences in, in, in different tests. And so we have to define what's normal first by getting 120 or 240 healthy people from our population to give us a sample, to test on the test, to say this is what the range of normal is for our test in our population. So those those studies will take us three months, two months sometimes to do. Then the test has to be built, IT gets involved, they have to build the test so that doctors can order it appropriately. And then we have to validate that the results appear in the computer system appropriately with appropriate comments, if there's a critical value or something is needs to be escalated more rapidly, there's a whole IT team that also has to validate this. So in a, in a typical situation, that takes three months. For the COVID-19 molecular assay, we did it in two days for the molecular test once the company came out with the assay, okay? because we knew that this was important. We knew we needed it now, and so everyone was working 24/7 to make that happen. The central locations don't have the capacity to do it for every single test. They don't have enough machines to do it. I mean, maybe if, if we would have started buying machines centrally six months ago, we would have been okay, but that wasn't the case.
0: The feat of being able to respond in the way that uh, has been able to be done sounds, you know heroic and you miraculous. However, It leaves me with a a sense of concern that there's a lot of variability in the durability and specificity sensitivity of the assay from institution to institution. So that's
1: true for every test. So depending on which company you buy your kit from, you may get different results. And you can't compare across institutions. This is bewildering to to
0: many people. Hospitals and doctors will vary in terms of their level of sophistication and, and quality to some degree. And they're all practicing medicine and they're all doing, presumably, things to advance individual and collective health. But you want to go to places where you've got the best doctors and the best uh, uh, medicine. Would it be accurate to say that the institutions that are highly respected and generally regarded to be better in terms of their uh, expertise and overall capability, that that extends to the rigor of their laboratory uh, methodology and assays also?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, I'm a clinical pathologist and that's part of what we do is we make sure that, um, A, the the results we're giving you are accurate. And how do you know that the result I'm giving you now is correct? Because it could be that the, the instrument broke down and that all of a sudden we're starting to give erroneous results because, you know, things malfunction. There are so many levels of control that we have to do to make sure that we're pretty confident when we give you a result that it's accurate.
0: On various conference calls that I'm on with other department chairs from other hospitals, I hear rates positivity of testing quoted. They're, they're very different, uh, but they're also very markedly different from our hospital. You know, our hospital, the current rate is, what, now, like 60% positive of all tests. Other hospitals, and uh, uh, I've heard 10%, 15% or so. It would seem that that's less a function of the uh, assay sensitivity or the method, and it is the criteria for who's being uh, who's being tested.
1: The good news in New York is that we're all regulated by New York State, which has more stringent criteria than the FDA. So you can feel pretty confident that all the labs in in New York State are, if they're you know, if they're doing a good job following the the New York State uh, guidelines are doing all the appropriate validation studies to make sure that their tests are sensitive and specific and that they're functioning accurately throughout the day. Um, I think the issue is in determining, based on your capacity, who you're going to test. And I think currently our our testing algorithm is really, we're mostly testing people who who come to the hospital and are really sick. We're not going out into the community and testing people um, who are not sick um, or not severely ill and so we're going to have a much higher rate of, of positive results if you're selecting. It's a selection bias if you're selecting people who, who are more likely to be positive.
0: I want to switch now gears to serologic testing um, or the testing that's examining the uh, immune response to the to the viral antigen. Can you just elaborate on, on what the logic, methodology, and status of that is?
1: So, so when you say serological testing, what you're saying is you're looking for whether the person made an immune response, and in this case antibodies, to COVID-19. And so when you're exposed to any virus, your your body mounts an immune response to it to fight it. And we can detect that. And that immune response, the the traces of that immune response can be detected weeks, months, sometimes even years later. So that's called a serological test, which is something we do on blood. So if you spin down blood, it separates it into the red layer and then the yellow layer on top. And the antibodies happen to be in the serum, which is the yellow layer on top. The first issue with serological testing is that if you become sick today, you're not gonna have antibodies to COVID-19 because you've never seen it before. And so you may have antibodies to other coronaviruses because you've seen them before, and that becomes an issue, Um, but you have never seen COVID-19, and so it's gonna take at least a week for you to make antibodies to it. So this is not a useful test to test you on day one of you just got sick and you want to know whether you have COVID-19. Where it's really good to test is it, it's two weeks later, you now feel better because you did what they're telling you to do and you didn't leave your home and you quarantined yourself. You never got tested, so you never got nose swapped. And now you want to know, did you have COVID-19? This is a great test for that. And so two weeks later, after you've cleared it, that's when you want to be testing for, for serology, not on day one through seven for sure, and probably in the first two weeks after symptom onset is not the right time to test for
0: serology. So what what good is it to know that you have it when you're better?
1: Okay, so we don't know for sure, but it, it seems likely that if you've had it once, you're probably not going to get it again. So when you think about being able to restart the economy and, and allow people to, to come back out... If you you know you've had it, then you can feel more comfortable going outside. There are some dangers in that, and and we need to talk about that as well. But, you know, if you have antibodies, then you're most likely protected from getting it again. The other advantage, and and that's what we're using it now, and that's why I brought it up um, so quickly, is because anyone who's recovered from COVID-19 and has made antibodies to it can now be a source for treatment. So if you've cleared it and you have protective antibodies in your blood, if you're willing to donate your blood, then that could be used to treat others who are currently suffering from the disease. We're using the test right now to screen people who've had it and recovered to see if they have enough antibodies to go donate blood so that then we could use that plasma to treat others. Um, That's the current use we're using at Columbia at the moment, and that's at the moment the only use um, that, that we're using it.
0: If you have been sick, but uh, not so sick you had to come to the hospital, and you toughed it out at home, uh, and your symptoms resolved, they resembled uh, everything that's been described about uh, COVID-19, and then you want to, or you have the opportunity to uh, be tested, Um, that would be the, the circumstances in which it would be done, and it would be able to verify that you did have it, and also maybe identify you as somebody who could be a plasma donor for for treatment. The only people that should have serologic testing at this point, or you would think would be most uh, indicated, are those that were symptomatic and recovered but undiagnosed.
1: With the current generation of tests, let me tell you about the test that we validated in-house. Basically, it looks like a pregnancy test. You can put a little drop of blood on it, and within 15 minutes, you have a result. So this sounds like a wonderful idea to roll out into the community so people can test themselves. So when I validated it, I needed to collect blood samples from hundreds of people who recovered. And so it, it took me some time to collect those samples. And I had to know when was their date of onset of symptoms in relation to when I got that blood sample so that I, I knew if there were 14 days out, seven days out, five days out, 21 days out, so that I could figure out at what point this test became positive. In the first seven days after someone has symptoms, if we get a blood sample, 0% of them were positive on this test. In the following week, it's about 30%. If you are known to have COVID-19, and we know that because I'm getting blood samples from people who got tested by nasal swabs, so I know they had COVID-19 because I can see the RNA in their nose. Between 14 to 30 days later, this test is only positive in about 50% of the cases. So in other words, it's not very sensitive. So the the way you develop these tests is you actually need to manufacture proteins from the virus. And in this case, it's a pregnancy test. You actually put those proteins on a strip, on a line, on a test strip, just like a pregnancy test. And when you put the blood on it, the blood flows through and the antibodies get caught up in the where that antigen is, where the protein is from the virus. And that's how you sort of detect it that causes a color change. The issue here is that unless you have the right protein on that line, it may not detect all antibodies. And the other thing is that coronaviruses are similar to each other. And so they have spike proteins. So the, the reason they're called coronaviruses is they look like a crown. So if you look at them under a microscope, sort of a circle and they have these club-shaped projections coming out of them. that That's why they're called coronaviruses. So that spike protein is a trimer of an S protein. And there are similarities between coronaviruses and their protein structure. And so there's potential cross-reactivity. So if you've had coronavirus 63 in the past, which is a mild cold, and made antibodies to corona 63, if you choose the wrong protein to put on your test strip, you're going to test positive COVID-19, even though you really had Corona 63. We don't have the optimal protein to give us confidence that we're capturing just COVID-19 and not something else, and that it has the the requisite sensitivity so that we can make sure that 99.9% of people who've actually truly had COVID-19 two weeks prior are testing positive with this test. At the moment, we're at 50%, 60%.
0: How do you reconcile that with the uh, media reports coming from, in many cases, uh, experts that talk about uh, the wide accessibility and uh, rapid uh, uh, turnaround in, in, in testing?
1: Well, that's what people want, and that's, that's where we should be.
0: They're talking about serology. That's the least sort of technically difficult, but the way you're describing it. It's, it's not, uh, uh, it's not you know, a, a turnkey process either.
1: So it needs to be, it's like, just like everything, when you develop a new test, it takes, you know, it takes months, if not years, to develop a new test and get it appropriately validated so that we know how it works. We're truncating the process and doing things in weeks or days um, as opposed to years. And, and so we're cutting some corners, but we're doing... The best we can, given the limited circumstances. You also have to remember that I can't validate a test unless I have blood samples with the appropriate antibodies. So how sure. can I validate a test if I sure. don't have people who've recovered for thirty sure. days? Sure. And we've we will, just started to get those blood samples now.
0: Even if you are able to satisfy yourself you're you're able to detect antibody with good specificity and are at least semi-quantitative, how do you know if it? confers immunity and neutralizes virus.
1: Absolutely. So those are other assays that need to be brought up that people are working on. We don't know. It's going to take time um, to, to, to bring up these assays the right way. These first-generation assays are crude. We're using proteins and we're trying everything. Where we are, I actually submitted samples to both the Department of Health and the NIH. They both are having massive efforts to try to if they have a big bank of, of samples, they can use that to try to generate and figure out what is the best test to roll out in the country. But at the moment, we're still pretty early on in the serological testing. And I think you'll see a shift, I think, over the next month where the serological assays will, will, become, um, will become more in focus because you know, if someone's made antibodies, you can probably feel more comfortable allowing them um, a little more leeway in, in leaving the home. What you have to be careful of and what we're finding now is as we begin as i begin testing convalescent plasma donors is that we're seeing a lot of this where people are testing positive for antibodies they've had no symptoms for two weeks and when you swab their nose you can detect rna of the virus in their nose it's also known that you can detect rna of the virus in their stool and so we don't know for sure um people have a guess but we don't know for sure for how long after you clear the virus, you might still be shedding virus in your nose, in your stool. And so just think about that and, and think about all the things we still don't know that we need to figure out before we can um, really begin opening up and, and allowing people to, to live a normal life.
0: If you know that there are uh, individuals who are asymptomatic carriers in one fashion or another, and um, many of them are healthcare providers who are a a population at greater risk because they're providing care to people who are infected, and we don't test them proactively, and uh, we wait until they develop symptoms and then send them home. Is that the best policy to be identifying people and and, and limiting contagion?
1: What I could tell you, though, is that just because someone tests positive um, for a swab after they've recovered does not necessarily mean that they're infected. So They may be shedding virus that's inactive or something. So we may have remnants of RNA that we can detect, but it's unclear whether they're truly infective. The the only way to really know that, and I don't think we'll ever do this study, but is to take someone who's cleared the virus and feels better, swab their nose and take someone healthy and put that in their nose and and see if they become sick or not. Mm -hmm. That's not a study we're ever going to do. We're going to have to use other in vitro tests or other ways to to test that.
0: And transmissibility.
1: Transmissibility, but they're animal models to do that. But at the moment, we truly don't know. We have to do the best we can given the limited what we our limited knowledge and, and resources. And so, you also have to remember that if we don't have healthcare workers, many people will also die.
0: But that's a balance,
1: problem. it's a balance. And I don't know where you draw the line, and that's above my pay grade
0: <laughs> and mine as well. So knowing what you do, which is quite a lot, and understanding the exigencies or the constraints of the circumstances that we're we're working under, are there specific things in terms of testing, policy, implementation that you think would be beneficial to do differently than we're currently doing? You
1: know, I, I may not be the best person to answer this question because I could tell you that over the past, I used to read the newspaper every day and I used to watch the news and um, you know, I was pretty well read. I haven't even read the paper in the past two weeks. And so I don't know what's going on outside of Columbia University at the moment and outside of this crisis and outside of what we're doing. So all I know is what we're doing. And I can tell you we're doing, I think, the best we can given the circumstances. And so I I can't tell you on a national level because I don't have the time to to become an expert on that. Um, And that's the the honest truth. Um, I'm not trying to evade your question. I think given our current limitations and the current quality of the assays we have available. I think we're doing the best we can. My hope is that within a week or two, we'll have a much better serological assay. And then we can begin to have the conversation about who should be tested out in the community and how do we begin to bring people back in. And I think we'll also find out whether this convalescent plasma is useful and in which situations it's useful. And then anyone who has antibodies can potentially save three or four other lives by donating their blood and we need to encourage people to do that Um, and that's currently what I'm focusing on and that's why I was, the minute a company gave me test kits for a serological assay, I jumped on it because I wanted to validate it specifically for this use to make convalescent plasma that could potentially treat others and that's all I'm focusing on right now.
0: So Dr. Hode, based on uh, our discussion, Uh, My understanding is is that um, the uh, molecular test is indicated in individuals who are symptomatic and have a certain degree of severity, usually warranting hospitalization or some more intensive care. And in uh, facilities such as uh, Columbia Medical Center, where the specimen can be collected optimally and that um, there's the capacity to do molecular diagnostics using one method or another.
1: You can also do it as a drive-through. As long as you have a qualified person doing the nose swab so that you get an adequate sample and then taking it to a, in New York State, at least a New York State certified laboratory to perform the testing, I'm pretty confident that that testing is accurate and that you're going to be providing people with accurate results. And you can actually get that test result within three hours of putting it on the machine. So that is a pretty rapid assay.
0: In terms of serologic testing, my understanding from what you've uh, described is that at this point in time, it's useful in individuals who have been symptomatic, either diagnosed COVID positive or presumptively COVID positive, and have recovered. And that the uh, yield wouldn't necessarily be clinically informative for that person's management would be helpful in indicating that they had exposure and that there may be some immunity that could be harvested for the purposes of treatment.
1: Sure. And also, you know, for healthcare workers who want to know, did I already have it? And although we don't know for sure, and we we would recommend PPE for everyone, I know if I was on the front lines, if I knew I already had it and had antibodies to it, I would feel a little more comfortable. I still would still use the PPE and still socially distance and everything like that, but it would give me a little more comfort um, being on the front lines. And so that's how we're going to be probably using it at Columbia. And as the test becomes better and better, and we bring up a second generation assay, a third generation assay that that is better and better, eventually these types of tests will be rolled out to everyone in the United States because that's going to determine the prevalence You know, they say that ultimately 70% of us will be positive for it. We won't know unless we have the antibody test.
0: I think that the American public has now become widely aware of the gratitude uh, that is owed to people on the front line, healthcare providers who are providing direct care, and they're showing it in many ways, uh, including, you know, having daily or nightly kind of public applause sessions where they recognize this. But I don't think there's a wide recognition about the heroes that are doing this work, like yourself, who were not clearly in the public view. And this is uh, at least as, as uh, important as the direct ministering of you know care by the bedside. So Dr. Hode, your colleagues, uh, uh, Dr. Susan Whittier, Dr. Steven Spitalnik, Kevin Roth, our gratitude and, and admiration for everything that you're doing and, and wishing you well and success in this work. Thank you. This is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman at Columbia University, and this has been Shrink Speak.